0: Good morning again. Um, today is the second Sunday of Advent. Again, as hard as that seems to believe, it's just sort of racing along. Um, and uh, today, in, in the series called The Invitation, what we have uh, from the Holy Spirit is an invitation to peace. Peace is the traditional um, theme for the second Sunday of Advent. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And um There is an old hymn that is one that's very special to me. I just love it. And uh, it speaks of a spiritual tranquility that seems humanly unattainable, especially once you understand the story that led to the writing of the hymn. The author's name was Horatio G. Spafford, and he was a Presbyterian layman from the city of Chicago. and. he was a very successful lawyer. He had established a, a, a strong legal practice, and uh, as a young man, and he was also a very devout Christian. And he, he considered uh, among his close friends, uh, one of them in particular was Dwight Moody, who was also from Chicago, and so they uh, they hung out together, I suppose. And uh, so Spafford had built this this really successful legal practice. Had um, built up the business to the point that he was a a fairly wealthy man. And then, in the great Chicago fire of 1871, he lost it all. He'd invested very heavily in real estate that was right along the uh, Lake Michigan shoreline. And almost overnight, he lost all of his investments. Then, in the saga that is somewhat reminiscent of uh, the Book of Job, his son died a short time before this financial disaster had occurred. But unfortunately, the worst was yet to come. He was desiring a rest for his wife and his four daughters, and he wished uh, to sort of join with Moody and assist him in one of his crusades that he was going to do in Great Britain. And so he plans this European vacation with his family a couple of years later, this is in 1873. And so uh, it was November, roughly about this time, and uh, he ended up having some some very last-minute business developments that came up. And so he ended up having to stay in Chicago, but he sent his wife and his daughters on ahead of him um, as were scheduled. And he was going to just follow behind them in a few days. And then on November the 22nd, the ship that his wife and daughters were on was struck. Uh, by the Lockhearn, an English vessel, and it sank in 12 minutes. Several days later, the survivors were finally landed at Cardiff, Wales, and Mrs. Spafford Cable her husband saved alone, and he immediately left to join his wife. And this hymn is said to have been written as he approached the area of the ocean where the ship carrying his four daughters had gone down. And what came out when he wrote was this, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is Well With My Soul is perhaps one of the most enduring hymns in church history. And what makes it, I think, such a great hymn is not only the beautiful lyrics of this hymn, but it's also the conditions under which he wrote it. The way that he must have felt. And what brought this whole story uh, of, of this hymn to mind was the text that we're going to look at today, which is part of the story of Joseph. Perhaps almost all of the story of Joseph that we have in scripture. And that's gonna be what we'll look at today. And if, if you have a Bible and you'd like to read along, be reading from Matthew chapter one, verses 18 through 25. And we'll have it up here on the screen. It'll be in the ESV translation. And so Matthew one, 18 through 25 Begins. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. Well, it's a lovely story. But as you might imagine, if you think about when the story started, given that our topic for today is peace, I'm imagining that Joseph probably wasn't feeling very peaceful. In fact, in all likelihood, he was downright upset because he was feeling that he'd been betrayed and humiliated. And I think because we tend to focus more on Mary than on Joseph, we may tend to forget that Joseph probably had hopes and dreams for his future. And this was clearly not the future that he'd envisioned. So what was it that caused such a dramatic turn of events in his life, from this idyllic future that he probably had imagined with his wife and his probably budding carpentry business? What changed all that? What were the obstacles that sort of came up that threw this peace into an uproar? Well, obviously, (laughs) his fiance turns up pregnant, and then seems to add insult to injury with this unbelievable explanation of how it happened. And I think it's important if, to really understand the significance of some of the statements that we, we make in this story, or that are made in this story, you really have to understand a little bit more about what the Jewish marital customs were in that day. Okay. So what, the way that it worked was that the bride and the groom went through this period of betrothal. Uh, not betrayal, betrothal, <laughs> which lasted about a year and it was really much more permanent than the engagements that we tend to, uh, to, to see in our culture and in our day and age. Uh, and this is kind of where they were, they were in this period. So in other words th- this was a binding contract and it was to be terminated only by death and that would leave the betrothed a widow or widower or by divorce, as if it were a full-on marriage. Okay, those were the only two ways to get out of this. You couldn't just say, nope, sorry, not feeling it anymore. I think I'll go find somebody else. Didn't work that way. This was essentially like they were, there was a ceremony, public ceremony. They were brought together. The only difference is, from this and a, uh, a marriage as we would think of it was, The the man was considered his wife's husband, but she still lived with her family during this year-long period. And the marriage is completed when the husband finally takes his betrothed into his home in, in, in another public ceremony, and that was when they came together, intimacy could begin, and they were considered truly to be husband and wife. Now part of the rationale for this waiting period is the very thing we're talking about today. It was to make sure the, young, the wife wasn't pregnant. So obviously if she waits a whole year, then, then you would know for sure. And so in our story, in this waiting period, Mary's pregnant. And it's sort of interesting because I think the text says that she was found to be pregnant. And so I'm thinking, based on that, that logic or that wording, that it probably wasn't that immediately after this angel shows up, she goes running to Joseph and says, hey, guess what? She probably waited until it was a little more obvious that she was expecting. And so... She finally, I mean finally it's discovered and she goes and she tells Joseph and then in addition tells him this bizarre tale um, that God was actually the father of her child and I would say to say that Joseph lacked peace at this point would be a gigantic understatement. I'm not sure I would even know what he thought. So he's dealing with this first of all. He's also dealing with a good measure of shame and humiliation. See, another thing about this culture that, uh, in which this happened some 2,000 years ago, was that that Israel at that time, and in fact the entire Mediterranean, was considered an honor and shame culture. That's very different than the way we look at it today. Um, See, as North Americans, we think of honor and shame as something that is really internal to a person. It's almost like there's part of their psychological makeup, uh, whether or not they think of themselves as being honorable. It sort of relates to the person's internal moral character. Okay. Um, today it's judged on the inside, but it doesn't have much bearing at all on how, I w- how you or I look at somebody, unless we're aware of something that they've done. But see, in the world of the Bible and in traditional Mediterranean societies, honor and shame are social values. And it has a bearing on how you would view someone's identity and and their value and their worth as a person. So it was very, very different. And so, you know, in this case, honor is a person's claim to self-worth. Okay, so this is, you know, I'm I'm a worthy person. And it's also other people's acknowledgement of that claim. So in other words, you agree that I'm a worthy person or that I have honor. Um, And then on the opposite hand, shame is really considered to be how much you're concerned about your reputation. And so if you have no concern at all about your reputation, you're considered shameless because you you don't factor that in at all. And so if someone is unable to kind of maintain that honor that they have, and or your peers don't acknowledge it, uh, then you are shamed or dishonored or disgraced. And just as kind of an aside, um, honor could come in two ways. It could be ascribed to a person or the person earns it on their own. And this idea of ascribing honor to someone is one of the reasons why we see genealogies in scripture. Because your family kind of transferred honor down unto you, okay? And so that's why in, in both um, I Matthew and Luke's gospel, we see genealogies being right up front, and there's a very, very specific reason for that. In Matthew, we get Jesus' pedigree as being both right in terms of his Jewishness, okay, so he came down from Abraham, right? and he had a right to be king because he was descended from david all right so that's the that's matthew's take on it luke is looking at, at it a little bit differently luke traces jesus lineage from adam all the way back to god why well because that sets up jesus right to be called the son of god <coughs> so that's sort of that. Idea, that's one of the reasons why you'll see these genealogies in Scripture was because of that. Now, if you were born into this first-century Jewish or uh, Jewish world, whether you were a Gentile or a Jew, you were trained from childhood to seek honor and avoid disgrace. Right, that was ingrained in you, and um, and so. Anybody of that culture was going to be very sensitive to what the public thought of them, probably overly so. And clearly, having a child out of wedlock in that day was considered shameful behavior. And undoubtedly, Joseph would have encountered people who would have ascribed the shame to him. After all, he had chosen this woman to marry he probably would have denied being the father, but at that point it almost didn't matter. Now, this was such a serious offense that, by law, Joseph had the right to have Mary stoned to death. Now, this didn't happen very much at this point in history, but it was still part of Jewish law, and he could have invoked that and would have been within his rights to do so we get a little bit of a glimpse of what kind of person Joseph was because in the midst of what I can imagine was a tremendous amount of pain. And our natural tendency to want to strike back at the person who's hurt us, he is trying to do the most honorable thing that he can do under the circumstances, which is to just kind of dissolve this thing with a divorce very quietly not make a big deal out of it, not try to, Mary was probably under enough shame as it was, and he didn't want to make it worse. So we have the shame and humiliation part of the story. (coughs) And then we just simply have the emotional turmoil (coughs) of the whole situation. So the story tells us that He's trying to consider his options, and he's not quite sure how to handle the situation. He's got these other, you know, he can divorce her, he can stone her. There's probably a couple of other ways to go about it. And he's really not sure what to do. (coughs) Excuse me. But given that Joseph was just as human as you and I, he did something that you and I probably have done many, many times. He said, well, I'll sleep on it. I'll go to bed, see how I feel in the morning. And maybe I'll have an answer then. So that's what he does. And you know, it's, it's safe to say that he's probably, you know, he is experiencing a tremendous amount of emotional upheaval. If you sort of think back, this is probably the best example I could come up with, but, but think back I- when you were in high school, right? Of course, everything's magnified probably 50 times when you were in high school and somebody breaks up with you or somebody rebuffs your advances and they don't want to go out with you. You know, and you just think about how that hurt, you know, the pain that that causes. Now age and experience can sometimes sort of diminish that a little bit, but you know, I don't think it matters what your age is. When somebody hurts you in that way, it's going to sting. It's going to sting. And so, you know, in in, in Joseph's case, we're not just talking about he sees his girlfriend holding hands with somebody else. She's apparently been intimate with someone else during the time when Jewish law strictly prohibited her from being intimate with her own husband-to-be. And so his hurt has got to be real, and it's got to be deep. And so, you know, I would say that given that he's sitting there trying to consider how to get out of this the best way he can, I think we have to assume he probably didn't believe the story Mary told him. I think that's safe to say. Oh, okay, God is the Father? No problem. We'll just go ahead and have this baby. Yeah, I don't think that was part of the conversation to you. So as I said, Joseph's in this quandary about what he's to do, and so he does what we might do. He, he decides to sleep on it. And so then while he's asleep, he has this very, very, very vivid dream. And in this dream, Joseph now gets an angelic visitation. Of course, Mary's had one. Hers was face-to-face. Joseph is asleep, but he has this this extremely vivid dream. And the angel proceeds to give him instructions about exactly what to do about this situation. He tells tells him what to do about Mary. Even he he quotes some Isaiah to him, uh, sort of as a way of explaining what's going on. Well, you remember when Isaiah said this? That's what this is. Guess what? You're right in the middle of it. And then I think the angel gave Joseph the one piece of information that would validate everything that he was saying. He told him to name the baby Jesus. and It was the same name that Gabriel had given Mary. Now I can't prove this. I'm going on my knowledge of human nature and the way emotions and arguments tend to run. But I have a hunch that when Mary set about explaining this situation to Joseph. I don't think the name ever came up. That's my own hunch. I think in the heat of the moment and what was being said, she more than likely told him this, this was God's child, but I don't know that she would have necessarily mentioned the name. That just sort of seems unlikely to me. And so That's why I think it was so significant that when Joseph has this dream and he at some point has to go and tell Mary I had this dream and you know and this is what happened and this is what the angel said and he said to name this baby Jesus and Mary's eyes get real big and she's like that's what the angel told me to name the baby and it was at that moment that he understood that this truly was from God if he had any doubts up to that point. Now, as I said, I can't, don't ask me to prove that with, you know, with a text from it, from Scripture. That's my own interpretation, my own hunch. And so, Joseph shares his dream. Joseph then takes Mary to be his wife. They all live happily ever after, right? Well, not exactly, but that's a different story for a different church holiday. Here's what I think happened, and here's what I think the Father wants us to see in this story. Joseph was invited by the angel to peace. What was the source of Joseph's distress? Was it Satan? The story doesn't tell us that. Was it Mary? She's probably the most innocent of all. Was it simply some random event that occurred? No. Was it God? was God the source of Joseph's distress? Yep. That's what the story tells us. It absolutely was God. God had this plan and he'd revealed the plan to Mary. Joseph, however, is completely unaware of God's plan at this point. But once Joseph understands how this plan involves him, he's able to be at peace. So what you end up with this, end up with, is this. The source of Joseph's distress was the same as the source of his peace. You ever stopped and thought about that? See, we have this tendency. We want to blame problems and, and, and lack of peace on all sorts of other circumstances. But it wasn't until Joseph aligned himself with the will of God that his, ent- and his entire outlook changed, then he was at peace. The thing is, the Holy Spirit is inviting you to be at peace as well. And the same peace that Joseph had is available to all of us. See, Joseph learned about it. Horatio Spafford, who wrote the hymn, he learned about it too. So can you. You see, both of these men found peace, yet in neither situation did their circumstances change. Did you ever think about that? See, Mary was still pregnant, (laughs) even though they got married and they started living together. And I would bet it's a fair thing that the stigma of what happened was never going to leave them. She was always, Jesus was always going to be the bastard child, sorry, born out of wedlock to the community that didn't understand the story and wasn't about to believe it. That was never going to go away. Horatio Spafford was never going to get his four daughters back. In neither case did their circumstances change. And I think the key to this kind of peace, we've already seen it actually. It was up on the screen a little while ago. I'm gonna put it up there again here in a minute. But the key is in that first line, first verse, or first stanza of Horatio Spafford's hymn. Look what it says. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way. What's he saying there? He's saying there are times when life is very good and and things are peaceful. And there are no problems. His second line says, when sorrows, like sea billows, roll. He's saying there's also going to be times when that peace is disrupted. When there is tremendous sorrow or hurt or pain or whatever may come into your life. And then the third line, whatever my lot, whether it's the peace of the first line or the sorrows like sea billows in the second line, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say. Did you catch that? Thou hast taught me to say. It is well it is well with my soul." And what he's saying here is that it's faith and trust in God that we get from reading His Word, from having a relationship with Him that brings about that peace. That's where the peace is found and it has to be learned. It's not natural, in other words. It isn't something that we just, oh, okay. You see, you can have questions about something and still have peace. You can have doubts and still have peace. Your, your external world can be completely unsettled and you can still have peace. The problem that you're dealing with may still be there, but you can still have peace. See, abiding peace can be found when we put our faith and our trust in a God who knows us intimately and loves us unconditionally. And if you can do that, if you will acknowledge that the will of God is... I mean, I wish I could stand up here right now and tell you how the will of God works. You would pay me a lot of money to do that, I'm pretty sure. In fact, I could probably go all over the world, and lots of people would pay me lots of money to tell them all about the will of God. But the fact is, if I could, I would, but I can't. And none of you can either. We don't understand the will of God. It would be great if we could, but we don't. Wouldn't need faith then. We wouldn't have to trust God then. It would just be easy. It's not the way he designed it. We have to put our faith in him, and we have to put our trust in him. And that includes an understanding or an acceptance that his will is better than ours, that his wisdom better than ours, that his knowledge of the future is better than ours, and if we will then accept that, that's when the peace comes. Like I said, it doesn't bring about understanding, it doesn't bring about, it doesn't get all the doubts out of there. You know, you may go to your grave not understanding why something happened. But that doesn't mean that you can't have peace about it. We just have to know that God has a plan. And it works in everything. And so if you will do that, if you will put your faith and trust in this God that loves you so much, you will be able to say in the midst of whatever in the world is going on in your life, it is well with my soul. I can't, again, I can't say this with any kind of certainty, but doesn't that sound an awful lot like a peace that passes understanding that Jesus talked about? It doesn't make sense. It's a peace that doesn't make sense. But it's ours if we will only accept it if we will put that faith and trust in this God of love. Well, what I want to do today um, for ministry time is, uh, is pretty much if you just are in need of peace, <laughs> I would like to invite you to come up front here and, and get some prayer. And I know um, holidays can be a tough, a tough go for a lot of people. No matter when you may have lost someone that you love, the holidays are always difficult in that regard. Um, just because they're, they're not around and, and they're not there to share in this thing that is such a family-oriented time. Uh, and so that, that hurt becomes a little more palpable, maybe a little more real. And so if that is what is, you know, is causing a lack of peace for you, and it, it may be something else entirely. It may be a situation at work that has nothing to do with the holidays, um, and you just can't get settled about it. I know I, I in the past, have certainly had those, those times. Maybe it's just a family situation that has gotten ugly. That's also some- that's also a byproduct of the holidays. Sometimes you spend a little more time around people that uh you're good with for about four hours, but then much beyond that it starts to starts to degrade a little bit <laughs> and you get that old saying about relatives and fish <laughs> so whatever it may be. I just want to invite you to to come and get prayer. You could come up front. We have folks stationed in the back that would love to pray with you as well. If you were here for worship, you experienced how real God is. And so if if you need that touch, don't leave here without getting prayer for you. Let God continue to touch you even as we move into this part of that's what we. That's why we have this, this last third part to our service. It's so that if you need a miracle, you've got a place to go to get one. And so if you need a miracle today, then you see one of these people. Now the miracle part is in God's hands making any guarantees but the fact is if you don't ask for it and then you don't pray for it you'll never get it and we're standing here with you believing that whatever it is that you desire if it's in God's will then it can happen so let's pray and then we'll move on so Father God I just give you thanks thanks for your peace. Thank you for a peace that is so profound and yet so impossible for us to wrap our minds around. That in the midst of of great turmoil, whatever it is, we can still have an Internal peace that defies description. So Lord, that's my prayer for these people that are here today. That your peace would be upon would be upon them in just a very real way. That they would right now would begin to feel your peace settle upon them even as they sit. Let your peace come. In Jesus' name, let your peace come. So, Father, bless each and every one of these be able to provide peace for somebody else in this week ahead. Give you thanks and praise, Father, for who you are, all that you've done for us, for your presence here today, and your presence in us as we Blessing upon each one of these, your people, in the name of the Father, and the Son. And